Hello, I'm Martin Lane, and welcome to Cannabis, the podcast about the business of cannabis. We inform, educate, and connect Australia's legal cannabis sector, bringing you exclusive interviews with the industry's top leaders in Australia and beyond. Coming up on today's show... Should the industry be helping the TGA do its job? What to do when your brand ambassador goes rogue? We talk to ANTG CEO and founder Matt Cantello, and the team make their predictions for 2021. So, welcome to the Cannabis Podcast, where we discuss the big issues in the Australian cannabis industry. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Joining me this week are Cannabis Chief Correspondent Steve Jones. Hello. Cannabis Editor-at-Large, Reese Cohen. Good morning. Cannabis Digital Content Producer, Emma Castle. Hi. And Cannabis Commissioning Editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. Well, we've been writing a fair bit about the Therapeutic Goods Administration recently and the work they're doing in cracking down on cannabis advertising breaches. It started when the TGA called on the industry to help drive out so-called cowboys by informing the authorities of illegal advertising and exposing basic baseless medicinal claims, particularly those made by celebrities. The TGA said it was striving to tackle the problem, but admitted it was struggling to win the battle. Reese, you've been analysing the complaint system for us. Why is it so hard for the TGA to keep up? Yeah, well, it's a bit of a moving feast, really. Um, it's a combination, as I see it, of three main different issues. The first one is it appears that the advertising compliance section of the TGA is pretty seriously underfunded. So according to their own annual report, they often fail to meet their performance benchmarks for uh, actioning and completing advertising complaints. And that's true across all types of medicines, not just cannabis, which is especially concerning. So they haven't even met their complaints uh, sort of resolution targets for COVID-related complaints. Uh, most COVID-related complaints this year, for example. So, the second is the guidelines around what is and is not advertising. These all require interpretation. So, you know, the TGA has to assess each complaint on a case-by-case basis and decide what is permitted and what is not in that particular context. And that's really laborious and it makes it difficult for companies to be certain about whether or not their material is going to be compliant at least until they get a warning letter from the TGA. And, th- and then on top of that, of course, you know, sometimes one TGA case manager might interpret things differently to another, which can cause even more confusion. So that's a, that's an issue. And thirdly, and, you know, this is the really sad one, uh, basically just too many companies are very clearly breaking the rules by advertising drugs to the general public in ways that are totally inappropriate. And too many of these companies are uh, or appear to be getting away with it. So, you know, that's kind of the the issues that, as, as I see them. And Steve, it's worth pointing out, you interviewed MedRelief Australia Chief Executive Russell Harding last week, and he was full of praise for TGA boss John Skerritt. Um, Harding pointed out that in his early days, Skerritt's thesis was on cannabinoid therapy, and he's a big reason there's been so much progress in the industry in such a short space of time. So I guess those companies who are doing the right thing shouldn't really have anything to fear. Well, you'd think so, but but it goes back to something Reese said, and it's about how TGA officials interpret particular scenarios. If you know the rules of the game and there are clear rules, you know when you're breaking them. If you don't know the rules in the first place, you're operating in the dark and, and therein lies the problem. I mean, I'd suggest that most of the time companies will know when they're sailing too close to the winds, but there will be occasions uh, when you may think you're doing the right thing. 
only to fall foul of, of you know, the, the somewhat cloudy rules. I'll, I'll give you an example. And it was one cited by TGA official Gillian Mitchell at a, a recent conference. Now, the TGA and the Office of Drug Control host educational videos on their websites. And, and Mitchell suggested companies might like to link that content to their own online platforms. However, she warned that the videos must stay in their original form. And even the inclusion of a company logo would constitute illegal advertising. So, you know, there's obviously gray areas. And, and even Mitchell said she wouldn't want firms to, in quote, inadvertently get themselves into trouble. So that suggests the TGA is is aware that firms may break the rules without really knowing they're doing so. So, um, look, there's probably nothing to fear as such if you play by the rules, but there's certainly room for uh, vigilance. Let's play devil's advocate a little bit here and, and maybe throw back to you, Reese. Is this, is it a bit, are we overcomplicating this a little bit? When I, when I say, when I say we, I mean, kind of probably the TGA and the, in, and the industry in that, you know, pe- there is a big difference between people making outrageous claims of medical efficacy when there are none and, a very kind of minor breach of some technicality because you kind of linked in the wrong way or, you know, something was deemed to be advertising rather than information or whatever. It shouldn't be this complicated, should it? I'm, I'm kind of with you. And the more time I spend, you know, reading about and thinking about and writing about advertising, the more I sort of sit down and go, isn't this all a bit silly like what's the what's the point here and and i think that's part of the problem right is you know fundamentally these rules and regulations are meant to be about protecting the community reducing harms um you know that they're they're, ideally they're meant to be quite strategic and 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 deliberate but the way in which these rules are written is so yeah confusing sometimes i guess that it's 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 catching Every piece of content related to cannabis is now, you know, in question, basically. And I don't think it would be that big an issue if it wasn't for the fact that the TGA has to enforce these rules. And, you know, this is what the rules say. You know what I mean? So I think it's a, it's a, it's a number of problems. I think there's, there's, there's probably fundamental problems with the rules themselves, what they're designed to do and what they actually do. There's also problems with the TGA, how they interpret the rules, how much money they have to enforce them. And then there's a problem with the industry, you know, which is, you know, not following even some of the more basic rules and, and bringing a whole pile of, uh, of, of pain down upon our heads. So, I, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's really blameless here. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a sort of you. You mention it in the second instalment of your of your um, analysis, which we're running later this week. Um, that there's a bit of kind of what aboutism as well going on, in that people will point to other people who are breaching rules in order to p- possibly deflect attention away from themselves. Um, and and the other thing that, that struck me is a little bit like whenever I'm sub-editing an article and I spend far too much time thinking about where the commas could go while not correcting the you know typo in the headline and it, and it feels a little bit like we might we might be focusing on the small things and not and, and forgetting the big picture a bit totally okay of course the other group the tga mentioned were celebrities making baseless claims which brings us to former my kitchen rules judge prominent anti-vaxxer and cannabis advocate pete evans 
Evans got into hot water recently for posting a neo-Nazi symbol on social media and was promptly dropped by a bunch of brands including Coles, Woolies, Channel 10 and his book publisher. The week before the controversy, he was a keynote speaker at the Australian Cannabis Summit. He's about to release a film called The Magic Plant and has plans for a cannabis cookbook. So he's become a bit of a self-appointed ambassador for brand cannabis in Australia. Emma, you've been chatting to some of the people who appear in The Magic Plant and others who've given Evans a platform um, for a feature you're writing on the man and his association with cannabis. Anyone got any regrets? Well, surprisingly, no, but let me explain. Um, Like for most of the people who were in the documentary, Pete approached them and, you know, like they were at the conference or he just kind of got in touch with them and, you know, this is before all this happened. So that recording, you know, took place many, many months ago, so before the neo-Nazi controversy. Um, So they just believe that all publicity is good publicity because these people are all at the coal phase. They've been working so hard to promote medicinal cannabis in whatever way. Um, And so, yeah, they're just, they're happy for people to know more about medicinal cannabis. Uh, But yeah, I've, I've watched the documentary. A lot of the people actually haven't even seen the documentary yet. So um, I've watched it and it's actually pretty good. Like it's beautifully produced. Um, and but things like just even the name is a problem like calling it the magic plant because magic implies trickery and sleight of hand you know so it's not magic it's actually science and so I think that that is a big problem straight off the bat um there's lots of spiritualism in it like there's a scene where There's a bunch of yogis getting high and um, doing yoga and connecting with the Godhead or whatever. And, you know, that's cool, but I feel like that somewhat undermines the medical message that a lot of people are working to um, communicate. Um, Everyone, and I've heard this a lot, it's only a plant, you know, they're trying to turn it into like this kind of legislatory thing. And it's like, but cocaine's a plant or coca leaves, opium, (laughs) you know, grapes, tobacco, like should we keep going on? Like plants form the basis of many things that are regulated. (laughs) So let's stop saying, oh, it's only a plant, man. (laughs) Just annoys me. And there's also a solid gold scene where um, Pete is sitting in a teepee in Colorado with a guy who's like a kind of, you know, spiritual psychotherapist pharmacological dude smoking some well he's smoking a pipe and um he shuts his eyes and he says I'm just I am (laughs) it's like full-on god complex moment where he says that the marijuana plant is communicating with him and that the plant feels sad about it being misrepresented um and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting what you say about some, you've spoken to some of the people who have appeared in the film who are, you know, um, as you say, people who are highly respected and in the industry and who want to do good, but they haven't necessarily seen it yet. So, you know, maybe they'll feel differently when when they do. I, I guess the other issue the, and the reason we started really thinking about this and writing about this was just that notion of, um, you know, him having a platform from the industry. Reese, I know you feel really strongly about this and won't speak at conferences where Evans is appearing. What's your take? 
Well, I have some pretty strong opinions about Pete Evans. So, so this this is what I think, right? So, I think Pete Evans has promoted well-known anti-vaxxers. I think he's also co- called COVID-19 a hoax, but despite that, has been flogging a device that is, is essentially just a fancy light bulb, which he claims can treat COVID. The TGA fined him for making those totally baseless therapeutic claims, which is nice, but the fine was only 25 grand and he charges 15 grand US for just one of these light bulbs. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that bothered him too much. Uh, in my opinion, he's recommended that people avoid using sunscreen, recommended that people stare directly into the sun and recommended that babies be fed a diet likely to cause them harm. And then, of course, he's interviewed and promoted famous Holocaust denier David Icke and most recently shared a cartoon which featured the same Nazi symbol used by the perpetrator of the Christchurch massacre. And when someone pointed that out to him on social media that he'd shared a Nazi symbol, he replied, I was waiting for someone to see that. But just a few days later, he not only claimed he had no idea it was a Nazi symbol, he said he didn't even know what a neo-Nazi was and had to Google it. Not that he needed a clue, but it's literally in the name. So, look, that's my argument against, you know, Pete Evans. And what's the argument in favour? That his celebrity infamy will somehow help win hearts and minds about medicinal cannabis? I don't think so. But Pete Evans isn't convincing anyone that medicinal cannabis is useful that doesn't already believe that. And therefore, he is of no use to our sector, in my opinion. I think that's a pretty good summary of the the case against. Um, I must admit, I, I do have some sympathy for event organisers, though, and uh, I'll, I'll explain why. Dur- during my Mumbrella days, we invited one of Donald Trump's campaign team to speak at our PR and communications event. And, you know, there was a fairly significant backlash from, you know, some people saying we shouldn't have given her a platform. Now, the argument we made was that, you know, whether you like it or not, Trump's 2016 campaign was like an object lesson in using social media to communicate a message. And, you know, as I say, you may not agree with that message, but there was much to learn from the methodology. Now, I'm not going to lie. I also thought it was going to help sell tickets. Um, So I can kind of understand why people like Pete Evans might seem to be attractive speakers to have at your event. You know, he's controversial. He's got an opinion. He's likely to put bums on seats or metaphorical bums on metaphorical seats in the age of COVID-19. The trouble is, unlike Trump's campaign advisor, I'm not sure there's much the audience can learn from Pete Evans, um, leaving aside all the ethical considerations um, that we discussed, um, which I totally agree with. So the brand damage just isn't worth it. Um, and, you know, cannabis doesn't have a profile problem. It has a legitimacy problem. And and I agree with Reese. So I don't see how Pete Evans can help with that. Josie, I'm going to bring you in here as well as your role with cannabis, you help um, brands with marketing and PR. What would you advise your clients if one of their brand ambassadors behaved like Mr. Evans? Uh, yeah, pretty much exactly the same as Coles and Woolies have done and drop them immediately. Uh, pretty much all you can do, to be honest. Uh, obviously, then you need to apologize, cut all ties, and then do your very best to just make everyone move on and forget that it all happened. And I feel like that's exactly what the cannabis industry needs to do with Pete Evans too, because there's just a very real danger that the industry is going to be tainted by the association with him. Because obviously when you partner with someone, your brand kind of absorbs the qualities and associations of that person, whether that's good or bad. And most of the time you would hope that that would be a positive thing. So that's why brands, you know, love partnering with sports stars and celebrities. There's kind of an inbuilt star quality that rubs off on the brand. 
but it can also work in reverse too. And I feel like that's exactly what's happening with brand cannabis and Pete, uh, and Pete Evans here. And yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I always think those those celebrity endorsements and partnering with celebrities is, is always risky. Um mm. You know, because people do, as you say, do crazy things. And you th- if you think about the NRL, you know, the NRL is struggling with this very thing at the moment. You know, two very mm. high profile um, rape cases going on. And you wouldn't necessarily want either of those people to have been, um, you know, advertising your products anytime in the re- recently, exactly. re- regardless of what happens with those cases. Okay, well, you can follow that story and much more besides at cannabis.com.au. And make sure you subscribe to our newsletter to receive all the latest Australian cannabis news and analysis direct to your inbox every Thursday. Now, Matt Cantello is an Australian cannabis pioneer, a former director and CEO, COO of one of the world's leading travel management companies. Matt launched Australian Natural Therapeutics Group in 2015, before medicinal cannabis was even legal in Australia. So he's seen the industry up close from the beginning. Josie's been chatting to him. Let's hear what he has to say. So joining me now, we have Matt Cantello, CEO and founder of Australian Natural Therapeutics Group. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Josie. Great to be here. Now, I know that you have a background in tourism. So to kick things off, I'm just a little bit curious how you got into the cannabis industry in the first place and kind of why why did you make that leap from the world of tourism to the world of cannabis? Yeah, great question, Josie, because of course tourism is not really a prerequisite for uh, the cannabis industry. But um, within that industry, I, I, it took me to Denver, Colorado back in 2010, 2011. I was there for about two and a half years, sort of off and on. While I was there, I watched the uh, the medical cannabis program roll out in Colorado after legalisation, and then mm-hmm. recreational. Two years later, I saw the whole sort of two years, and you know what? I was amazed by what I was seeing, um, the anecdotal evidence that was coming from not just the medical stories, but also the social and economic stories. You know, the, the state was spending the dollars wisely on youth programs and. Um, we saw other statistics like uh, opioid overdoses were down dramatically um, and, of course, the medical stories were amazing. And one particular story really pulled on my heartstrings and that was um, regarding Charlotte Figge, who most, most of our listeners probably know Charlotte Figge's inspiration behind Charlotte's Web. I sort of saw what happened uh, early on. That family was, was suffering terribly and Josie, uh, Josie, sorry, Charlotte was suffering terribly from Tourette's syndrome, so she was suffering many seizures a day, up to hundreds. Uh, they had tried everything and finally they turned to cannabis and they, um, they found the Stanley brothers who were growing high CBD hemp and they eventually um, started Charlotte on a program of that and it changed her life almost immediately and, and dramatically. Had a quality of life. Um, Charlotte had a quality of life which she didn't otherwise have. And that, 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 you know, at that time, my daughter was the same age. And so, yeah, that really put in my heartstrings and, and uh, I suppose piqued my, my interest and curiosity. And then uh, when I got home in about 2013, after being in the travel and tourism industry for the best part of 18 odd years, I decided that, that I wanted to make a difference in this industry. And I was lucky enough from, from the success of that other business. To be able to invest my time and, and my money in sort of really delving deep back in 2013-14 is when I first started investigating um, the, the benefits of, of cannabis medically uh, and then I formed the company in 2015 all the while surrounding myself with really smart people, much smarter than me with regards to genetics, cultivation and, and, and uh, manufacturing. 
And yeah, we slowly built that expertise around it. Today, ANTG is formed out of that, I suppose, really inquisitive mind around cannabis and then following on from that inquisitive mind, making sure that there was uh, the right people in the business to take it to the place we wanted to go. Did you see any links between tourism and, and cannabis? Do you see any overlap? I'm thinking particularly with, you know, the advent of cannabis tourism in places like Colorado, which you just mentioned. Do, do you kind of see any link there? Maybe maybe not necessarily now, but in the future? Oh, absolutely. Look, we, we also, um, in, in California, a state-certified manufacturing and cultivation facility there. So we've had full exposure to the California market. And, of course, it is a recreational market. We, we, we tend to err on the side of medical wherever we are. Um, but, yes, look, there is a tourism cannabis uh, sector out there that, that Colorado, California, cannabis has really, I suppose, um, triggered. And it will happen in other parts of the world. But, you know, here at, at, in Australia, ANTG is squarely on, on the medical side of things, but there, there is a Certainly draw that dressing. Um, now I know that you invest across, you know, a variety of sectors. So I'm, I'm curious what it was about cannabis that kind of drew you to the industry from an investor's point of view. Yeah, um, another personal story, I suppose. My father um, passed away five years ago after sort of fighting, battling cancer for seven years. He, he sort of beat it twice, but it ended up and ended up getting well. It wasn't necessarily the the cancer that got him. It was potentially the um, the drugs that he was full of, you know, unfortunately back then five years ago, the only sort of drugs for uh, cancer pain and, and, and related issues was, you know, opioids and, and, um, and, and the like. So I watched him deteriorate very quickly over a number of years and, and it, was, it, was, it was horrible to see someone that you love so much going through so much pain and someone that was active their whole lives. Um, so, you know, that, that really sparked my interest because I could see what was happening around the world, not just in Australia, America was... Was, was even worse, and that was um, opioid and opiate prescriptions were rampant. And mm. you could see the effects of, of, of these drugs on, on not only my father but others around me. And, and to be honest, that's what really sort of tipped me over the edge to, to get to, to, to the cannabis industry, the alternative medicine industry, I would call it, too, um, and the medicine um, industry. So I know that the export market is a focus for ANTG and you cleared a huge hurdle in late 2019 by getting uh, listed on the register of therapeutic goods so yep. congratulations for that how has that side of the business been going this year and where do you kind of see things going on that side heading towards 2021 yeah well I'm happy to announce actually it was just yesterday we had our very first commercial shipment um, of, of 60 kilos leave shores for Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, heading for Germany. So, yeah, look, it's been a year in the making. As you mentioned, we had the, the, um, the sign-off from the TGA a year ago, but it's taken us a year just to um, go out. I'd I, I bore you if I told you about all of the hurdles we've had to out <laughs> here because, you know, it's the first commercial uh, shipment out of Australia of, of cannabis flour. Uh, I understand there's been some oil shipped to Germany. But, yeah, it's a bit hard with cannabis flour because of the, the uh, I suppose, the TGO ninety three equivalent in Germany, the DAB, it's very, it's very strict. Mm-hmm. Without having to irradiate it, to have it in its natural state, as clean as a Panadol or a ventolin inhaler, in order for it to be approved 
is it's been it's been difficult, and and also the paperwork and the bureaucracy that's gone with it yeah. has been quite amazing. But you know what, uh, we see a huge a huge um, I suppose potential there. We want to make it very clear that Australian patients are our first and foremost priority, um, and we are certainly out there in, in the community with products for Australians. You know. Unfortunately, it's taken a while for the Australian um, patient market to increase for a number of reasons. And um, because of that, as an independent company, you know, completely funded um, privately by myself, we really needed to make sure we had some form of revenue to, to keep the doors open and pay, pay the wages and so mm. the export market. Um, the good thing about looking at that export market, particularly Germany, was that we soon found out, we soon learned that we couldn't just build a greenhouse um, in standard specs, we actually had to build a GACP greenhouse, good agricultural and collective collection practices, which is the equivalent of a GMP status but in a cultivation facility. Um, Germans, uh, as I said, have got very high standards, such as Australia does as well. Um, but if we didn't spend the extra investment on building this GACP facility, and just to give you an example, um, the air movement within these, this discrete base we've built move, I think it's every three minutes, it's completely replaced. We've got massive HVAC systems, wet walls. It's, it's a state-of-the-art gold standard facility. We decided to, to over-spec in regards to that so we could tap into the German market, but also so we could... We could, um, you know, be proud of the fact that we're gold standard both here and overseas, and, and I think uh, that that sort of will help Australian patients very feel very comfortable with our products as well. Absolutely. And do you think, you know, all those hurdles that you mentioned and and the very very high standards for the export market, do you think that puts some companies off and they're just, you know, don't even want to approach it, or do you foresee more and more uh, countries? Uh, companies, you know, following your leads to, as we head towards next year. Yeah, look, I'm not too sure uh, if there's any other companies that are building to GSCP specs. I'm mm. sure there would be. Um, it's nice to have that, that head start, of course. But I think there is a market for dried herb out there. The German market tells us that um, the majority of prescriptions are for dried herb in, in Germany at the moment, and in Australia we're seeing probably more than we expected as well. But to be able to provide dried herb, as I said before, you know, we, we need to make sure it's as it's, it's clean as, as a Bethlehem or, or a Panadol. And to do that, you need the absolute perfect conditions and the perfect facility to do so. So I dare say that there will be other companies to follow in our footsteps. And, and then kind of looking on the other side of the spectrum, um, we recently reported that the Department of Health is con- considering taking steps to require that all imported medical cannabis should be held to the same quality requirements as local products. So I just wondered where you stand on this. You know, do you see this as a problem for local producers in that, you know, we all need to be held to the same standards and there needs to be a bit more of a level playing field because at the moment it doesn't quite feel like we have that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's been a little frustrating. Um, I understand the regs were written the way they were for, for, for you know TGA reasons, but yes, it is not a level playing field. Unfortunately, the uh, the imported products are not um, held to the same strict standards that, that we are. In fact, you know their, their facilities aren't certified like ours are by the Australian government anyway. Um, and yeah, I think that that level playing field needs to occur for Australian industry for, for Australian businesses to be able to compete right now. There's a flood of Canadian product and there's a flood of Canadian product all around the world. As we know, I think there's, there's 700 tonne apparently sitting in warehouses in Canada because 
the way that Canada was, was uh, that the industry sort of built around that let's build the largest facility we can, mm. demand will come. Well, the demand hasn't come. So mm. supply of Canadian products, and, and, and you're right, it doesn't have the same regulatory standards that ours does. And I would like to think that the TGA will rectify that in, in, in due course, hopefully sooner rather than later. And obviously we're now in December, so I think a lot of us are kind of looking towards next year and seeing what's coming up. And obviously the down scheduling of CBD is a big topic on everyone's minds. Uh, and I just wondered what your opinion is on that more generally. You know, we've had a few people praise the potential down scheduling. A few people have called it a bit of a red herring, thanks to some difficulties and expense of getting scheduled in the first place. Where do you kind of stand on that? And where, where do you see things you know, yeah. next year? It's a good question. I, I probably um, would agree with, with Rhys Cohen's comments. He's, he's made a few comments on this. If, if the dosage um, that has been recommended does go through, it's going to be very hard for any company to clinically prove for a condition. Um, you know, I won't repeat Reese's words, but it's very clear that, that, that it's going to be it's going to be difficult. It would be nice to think that Australians would have access to to um, CBD over the counter in a pharmacy, but to be honest, I don't see that happening for some time unless the recommendation uh, comes out at a higher dosage of CBD than we're expecting. And obviously, a big part of this is is research. And more broadly, do you think that more research is going to be required? before the medical industry can start to see cannabis as any other drug? I know that there has been some funding announced from Greg Hunt around this, but do you think more needs to be done more generally before the medical community gets fully on board with cannabis? Yes, is is the short answer. However, there is a a large, well, a growing amount of doctors who are becoming far uh, more confident with the safety and efficacy, even without the clinical data. We're seeing that on a daily basis. Um, I suppose... If we look around the world, the body of evidence is growing dramatically that, that the safety and efficacy is there. We aren't seeing anybody dying from cannabis use. We are seeing people dying from other pharmaceutical products that are duly approved by both the FDA and the TGA. So it's um, it, it's growing. I see the doctors are starting to get comfortable with the fact that they're not going to be doing any harm. However, yes, it is industry's role to provide that clinical data. And it's going to take us many years, of course, at ATG, we decided early on that we wanted to focus on on, on that um, clinical data. So we teamed up with the University of Newcastle, um, Dr. Matt Dunn, who a lot of the uh, listeners might know of. You know, Dr. Dunn's an amazing guy. When we first approached him almost four years ago, three and a half odd years ago now, he was quite sceptic. He told me this is not the silver bullet. And I said, I don't expect it to be the silver bullet, but I think it could be complementary. And um, we entered into a, a partnership back then and, and that's since been, you know, uh, in the lab. We haven't gone to clinical yet, but in the lab we've seen some amazing results, particularly um, around uh, acute myeloid leukemia and uh, certain types of brain tumors. We've seen our high CBD um, product, EVE, having a remarkable effect in, in the lab. So we're moving that to clinical studies next year, and I think that that's a very exciting one. Obviously, cancer, it's lofty heights, um, and we're mm. to cure that, but we do think that it could be very complementary to, say, chemotherapy because what we found in the lab is that when uh, EVE is combined with chemotherapy, um, the cancer cells were killed, but the human cells stayed intact. So we think that there's some, some, some merit there. Um, we are also, we've also entered into an agreement with the um, University of Western Sydney, a natural institute for complementary medicine, and we're running a, a fairly lengthy program there over, over a number of years in pre-dementia, pre-Alzheimer's, 
and all the associated conditions such as brain inflammation, uh, depression, anxiety, sleep um, will, will come out of that. But again, it's going to take us quite a number of years to really establish any you know, feasible clinical data that the industry can grab hold of. And in the meantime, doctors are going to have to start to become more comfortable, especially as the, the patient-doctor discussions begin. We're seeing a lot more patients actually opening the discussion with their doctors as well. So um, I think we're on the right path, but, but as far as getting that clinical evidence to, to the forefront, it, it's, it's a long process. Absolutely. And you mentioned there the silver bullet. I think this idea of cannabis being, you know, the be all end all magic product, it's, it's something that I think continues to be touted, especially from, you know, certain areas of the industry, perhaps the gray or the black market. I I do feel like it's almost over promised and under delivered. Do you think that's a bit of a problem for? people like yourself and businesses like yourself who, you know, are trying to get along based on scientific evidence-based, you know, products. Do you think that kind of other side where people are trying to to sort of sell cannabis, you know, for more than it is, do you think that's a bit of a problem? A little bit. And there are, the, you know, the, the snake oil sellers out there that are, that are claiming it, it fixes everything. Of course, we know it doesn't. I mean, it is an amazing, amazing medicine. There's no doubt about it. You know, the basic conditions such as anxiety and sleep and, and pain, you know, it's, it's very clear that it helps a lot. It's not the panacea. It's not going to solve all of the world's problems, that's for sure. But, I suppose, you know, if, if you could see alcohol consumption decrease with the increase in consumption of, of medical cannabis, I think the world would be slightly healthier. Um, no doubt about that but yeah certainly not it's not the silver bullet to everything but it's you know it's yet to be proven just how beneficial it is to how many different conditions definitely yeah I think it's it's definitely somewhere in the middle that's right I agree (laughs) yeah okay now as I mentioned it is December we're looking towards next year so I've got to ask you the classic question that might be a little bit difficult to answer but where do you see the industry going in 2021 2021, I see a dramatic increase in in, um, in TGA approvals and patient prescriptions. I also see um, reduction in prices as more Australian companies get their products on the market. Um, and I also see some, some good clinical data, not necessarily from our company, but coming out in um, you know, the Lambert Initiative and, and, and other research projects. I'm seeing that in my crystal ball, I can see that some good clinical results will probably come out next year. Mm-hmm. Will, will surge, there's no doubt. We're seeing in Germany um, the numbers of patient accessing medical cannabis is, is, is growing rapidly and I think that Australia's starting to catch up. The snowball effect has begun. I'm sure ANTG is very well positioned to take advantage of that snowball effect. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, we, we want to provide the highest quality medicines, both, both in dry and herb format in, in vape format and also in oil formats. And right now we're working on our formulations for our oils and our vapes and they should be released by February. Um, but again, you know, our focus is just to make sure that it's of the highest quality, um, it's consistent with its cannabinoids, it passes all of its tests. The quality and purity are, are the two words that we live and breathe by. Everyone in our company literally lives and breathes by quality and purity. So quality is making sure that the cannabinoids are consistent every time and purity, making sure that we pass the TJ93 tests for heavy metals, pesticides and, and any other foreign matter, uh, for toxins. So, yeah, look, that's our goal, but we want to make sure it's the best. 
Amazing. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. So thank you very much for joining us, Matt. Thank you very much for your time, Jesse. It's been great. And finally, I think we can all agree 2020 has been a bit rubbish, to put it mildly, apart from the launch of cannabis, of course, which has been a shining light in an otherwise bleak landscape. But with a vaccine on the horizon and increasing consumer demand for medicinal cannabis driving regulatory change, things can only get better, surely. With that in mind, I asked the team to come up with their industry predictions for 2021. So let's find out what our crystal ball gazers have come up with. Steve, you're always a man who looks on the bright side of life. What's your big prediction for the cannabis industry next year? Yeah, I, I do actually look on the bright side of life. People mistake realism for pessimism. But anyway, that's, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that to one side. I, I, th- I think there's a big 12 months coming up for uh, medicinal cannabis companies. I mean, it's always a big 12 months, but I think particularly um, the next year. I don't envisage any major changes to access, um, although a few more private health funds may start to offer rebates as the Health Industry Fund of Australia started doing recently with Little Green Pharma. Uh, but but it's clear firms can't keep returning to the market for endless rounds of fundraising. Um, investors have, have become more savvy and are closely quizzing business leaders on their commercial plans and their pathway to profitability, if I can use that phrase. So I wouldn't be surprised in 2021 um, if we don't see a degree of consolidation um, and or one, of the, one, one or two operations just simply running out of cash. Thanks, Steve. Cheery as ever. Emma, you used to work in PR. I'm sure you'll have a more positive take on things. Well, I have to say I keep seeing hemp products everywhere I go. Like I love Audi and I was at Audi the other day and there was a hemp drink and I'm like, okay. Like, so I actually think the future is going to be full of hemp snacks (laughs) and drinks. So, uh, I think that will actually help with the profile of cannabis generally because people will see it as a superfood and that will kind of tap into the more medical, nutraceutical side of things. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And Reese, what are you seeing in 2021? Well, I think we, we will see some significant improvements with the ODC next year. So the single uh, license system should be implemented Uh, next year, which will be great for local companies, cultivators and manufacturers. And I'm also cautiously optimistic that 2021 will be the year that imported products are required to meet the same quality standards as locally made ones. That'll be nice. Uh, Product prices will keep coming down. But yeah, I don't think think we'll see any significant sort of structural changes to patient uh, access, um, to echo Steve. Um, And depending on what happens with the Schedule 3 CBD decision, I don't expect we'll see any over-the-counter products next year either. Now, that's interesting because the TGA, of course, delayed its decision on downscheduling CBD last week and now say there will be an announcement in late December. So the cynic in me um, fears that may be a good time to bury bad news, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, Finally, Josie, what's your big prediction for next year? Yeah, so I think just on the down scheduling, I kind of see from speaking to a few different people, it's definitely a mixed bag. And I think for some, there'll be celebration if it does go ahead and from others, it won't be. But I think that for everyone, there'll be the sudden realization that there's still a lot more work to be done before we see CBD on pharmacy shelves. So I foresee a year of submissions, assessments, and hopefully eventually some registrations. But of course, this is all assuming that the downscheduling does go ahead in the first place. So yeah, I think it'll be 
a year of a lot of paperwork, which is always fun. Yes, I was going to say that. So, you're, even, you're even less cheery than Sting. <laughs> 2021 paperwork. After this year, I just don't have much hope for 2021. But um, yeah, we'll see. I, I think t- 2022 is going to be our year, people. <laughs> Butter today, jam tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the, the the idea of the idea of sitting around and making uh, predictions about next year just feels especially sort of futile and, and silly in light of the, the <laughs> sorts of predictions that, that I was making, you know, at the start of, of 2020. Oh, so, my God. You know, yeah. what, what, you, didn't, you didn't predict a global pandemic, Reese. You know, it wasn't on my list. No, um, <laughs> it's really strange. Yeah. You're supposed to be the expert around here. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's all we have time for this week. My prediction is that we'll be back very soon. But in the meantime, come and join in the conversation at cannabis.com.au. It just remains for me to thank Steve. Thank you. Reese, thanks. Emma, cheers. And Josie, thank you. And you for joining us. I'm Martin Lane, and we'll see you next time on the Cannabis Podcast. Mm-hmm.